I mean, there are consequences we can't avoid. Right. Um, it's not like climate change is something we go, well, in the future, that's going to be an issue or we're going to have consequences for our actions. There are already many, many consequences for our actions. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Illuminated Podcast. I'm your host, Kieran Kuritala. I have with me Dr. Kira N. Krakos. Kira is a professor of biology and director for sustainability program at Maryville University and a research associate at Missouri Botanical Garden or Missouri Botanical Garden, depending on who you talk to. She was named science editor of the year by STL Academy, Academy of Science in 2016. She teaches courses in ecology, plants, people, evolution, conservation and sustainability and botany. Her lab focuses on two main areas of research that emphasize the need to understand the dynamics of natural world in a changing environment. First, she studies the evolution and ecology of plant reproduction, including plant pollinator interactions and breeding systems. Secondly, she is the PI for, uh, private investigator for the Merrillwell Honeysuckle Project, and that is studying local green solutions to invasive species. You can find her TEDx talk in 2015 under Plants, People, Pollinators, a life story, a love story. Um, we'll put it all in the show notes. Kira, welcome to Eliminated Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So this is a really amazing confluence of time that we're having this discussion. And uh, especially with your you know, focus on climate change, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. Uh, but let's start from, you know, the problem of climate change and the solution. Uh, we all have seen Al Gore's, um, you know, an inconvenient truth. And, you know, there has been a lot of focus on each person can make a difference by recycling better, finding better light bulbs and drinking less sodas and using less paper straws. All of that sounds good, but the truth of the matter is no matter how many movies came out, no matter how many commitments came out from especially at least the democratic, the big D part of the government, I feel like we're only, the climate change issue is only getting worse and worse and worse. So talk to us about how somebody, you know, talk to us about why climate change is important and uh, why should we care? Because no matter what we do, things are getting worse. <laughs> Way to be an upbeat at the very <laughs> beginning. Um, no, uh, we'll so change it to optimistic in a second. Sorry. It, it's all good. Uh, but listen, I mean, there are times when uh, it's uh, it's very overwhelming and uh, and hard to to get your head around. And I would also say, like your soul, it it, it you know it's it's frightening. Um, for part of that, you talked about that. Um, I mean, there are consequences we can't avoid. Um, it's not like climate change is something we go, well, in the future, that's going to be an issue or we're going to have consequences for our actions. There are already many, many consequences for our actions. We see an mm -hmm. increased in erratic weather patterns. We see uh, shifting coastlines. We see um, sociopolitical problems like water rights, climate refugees. These are already uh, happening. Uh, those impacts are already here. That's and there also are we'll just we'll just go dark right off the bat. Okay? Yeah, sure. And then there's also the part where we will we we cannot hit um, the IPCC goals that of of uh, the degrees of warming that we were were warned about. Mm -hmm. We're just right. not going to. Um, and even if we turned off like every car today, 
the impacts of climate change, we, we would still have to mitigate. Right. There, there, so yeah, we, we have made a mess and um, there is damage that is done. Yeah. So there's sort of a twofold approach that you want to look at there when you talk about climate change. One is how do we deal with the consequences that we can't avoid? And the other is how can we put in place mitigating future consequences? Sort of like if you smoked your whole life and you're yeah. like, well, I quit at 50. That's great. But your lungs are kind of damaged. And right. it's better you stop now than at 70, but provided you live that long. But um, but there's still consequences of actions. So we have to sort of approach this from two angles all the way. It is um it is a little frightening. And I think part of it is because it's a global problem. And right. so you mentioned like the little things we can do, does it even matter? Um, yes and no. <laughs> right. Um yes, every if every human does those little things, it does matter, right? We are uh, the the thousand little steps that, that make a journey. Um, I should say millions. But, um, but there also are those parts that are reasons we have things like um, IPCC and, and, and the Paris Accord and, and where nations talk together because big problems take big movements by governments, by the market, economic mm -hmm. policies, legislative policies, where our votes certainly matter, but it is for those those big, you know, big turn the slow moving cow situations. Sure. Um, those are needed. Yeah, all that sounds great. And um, I think does it? It sounds it, dark. <laughs> it is dark. And maybe we'll stay on it for a second because your metaphor on a cigarette addict or nicotine addict uh -huh. uh, smoking all his life um, there is a there's a reversible path where you can smoke your cigarette all you know for 20 years and you can probably put your lungs to a normal state or some, almost normal state if you stop at 30 uh, but when you get to a point where you're smoking for 30 years when you become 50 your lungs no matter how much you go cold turkey, your lungs are irreversible. And the biggest, the scariest thing I see about this is that I think I've seen this latest uh, news about climate change that Earth is now in an irreversible path to a, you know, they call it a climate catastrophe in the mm -hmm. next couple of hundred years. Originally, when they predicted that, you know, if you go on this current path, it might take, I don't know, 500 years before we start yeah. seeing some real catastrophic issues. But now we're talking about a couple of hundred years. So is that true? Like, what do you see as the way for us to alleviate this and remediate this? And is this truly irreversible at this point? So, like I said, parts, the, there are the consequences are already on our doorstep. Yeah. There are parts that we can't, um, we can't stop from what's what, what's happening. Right. And so we have to say, well, that means we're going to need to, you know, um, especially like say along coastlines, we're going to have to put in place uh, levees and barriers for rising, rising sea lines uh, where where we uh, move our ships to the military worries about this all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, they're like, well, where will those patterns be? We're going to have to modify some of those things. There are areas that no longer can be farmed. They just can't. 
Um, and there are, if you want a particularly grim thing to do, uh, just Google climate refugees. And there are whole regions, um, particularly in parts of Asia, where folks are now living in refugee camps because where they lived and farmed for probably thousands of years is dead land. Um, and those are real and immediate consequences. We've seen um, here in the US, um, things like, uh, particularly out West, how aggressive the droughts have become, um, the drying up of the lakes, um, the shrinking of our water resources. And then long before uh, we run an, you know, to the part where uh, you have to move or something like that, you start to see um, fights over resources. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. probably the biggest thing that starts to happen, right? Is conflict over resources. The cause of all the wars mm -hmm. um, is, well, we can't get enough food. We can't get enough water. Um, that's That gets ugly very quickly. Yeah. I think the the fear is definitely there. I think, uh, you know, like irre irreversible. Once the ice caps melt, ice shells melt, it's not like no matter what you do, you can't put them back because it took them thousands of years to form or millions yeah. of years to form. Um, and obviously, if we have animals or birds or mm -hmm. fish that are extinct, they can't return back so that that is the risk and the geopolitical stripes so especially uh, if you're in india or southeast asia mm -hmm. uh, the water shortages will create political and the geopolitical crises that i'm not even sure we can recover from but um let's take a pause there and see if we can talk about innovative solutions because you know while there is a lot of dark um fear that's coming up um and i'm I'm not sure if everybody starts changing their bulbs or everybody starts buying, uh, you know, hybrid vehicles will solve the problem because I feel like the hidden cost of uh, a car like Tesla is unexplained because, you know, the the cost to take cost it cost of creating the battery cost of dismantling it of the car is getting destroyed or the cost of electricity is not really being evaluated. But the thing I'm most excited about from a solution perspective is the potential that we can move to from fossil fuels to nuclear fusion. Sure. Um, do you agree with that? And are there other innovative ideas we can be excited about uh, where that we have, that people have been tracking, especially in the scientific community? Sure. So alternative fuel options, I mean, maybe one of the best things that will happen for our species is that fossil fuels are a finite resource <laughs> because right. I worry we would pee in our own pool until we died. Right. We just, we would not be able to break that habit, but uh, that is an area of aggressively increasingly shifts towards um, not that we haven't had these technologies actually for a while, right? Solar has been around. Um, our battery technology has been very good, et cetera, but it hasn't been market viable. And you have to have, as lovely as it would be to say, we're all going to have these very expensive solutions and and uh, return to nature or, or that mm -hmm. kind of thing. That's, that's not practical, right? We have right. to live in a, a uh, fiscally viable world. And right, so- Right, because it's yeah. not like we can, no matter what happens, humans are not going to go back to living like animals. You know, we still need to have yeah. clothes. We still need to have houses, boats. Uh, airplanes. We, we we want to air condition our homes. Yeah. I live in Missouri. It's July. In July, there's no way I'm going to live yeah. without AC. Um, yeah. But um, 
but that, so that energy source, right. Becomes like a real, we are an energy hungry species. And um, so those, those innovative solutions for those alternatives increasingly become uh, uh, economically viable. And that really right. is, I mean, market drives that kind of thing. So, whereas I think about like, you know, think about electric cars in like the eighties when I was, you know, a, a kid and so forth. Um, they were expensive and didn't run great and nobody wanted them and they had a very bad reputation. Right. Right. And um, you mentioned Tesla, which again has all these like costs and parts of it that were like, ah, eh, maybe not as great for the environment. They are still very expensive, but here's one thing that Tesla did do. It made electric cars cool. Yeah, for sure. Now, that's a pretty big thing for Homo sapiens to get on board with. Um, we we like we like having cool things. And if right. something is, I mean, marketing and branding is super important. And so if we can harness that sustainability and being team planet Earth is something that is viewed as economically viable, a cool kid thing to do. Um, I mean, we're, we're a strange species. We're, we're into that. Right. Um, certainly our technologies and our innovation are, uh, there, there's so, so much that's out there or that's being researched or that's, that's being developed. It's not that we don't have the brains and creativity and actually the R&D for it. It's implementation. It's pulling it into our day-to-day -day lives. So this is where that pressure starts to build from like the general public. What do they want to see? then sociopolitically, it starts to respond that way. Um, I am uh, very on board with, particularly with solar, um, The we're making just light speed, not just that the tech is there, but the implementation of it that makes a, a big difference. But it's a slow moving thing to shift an economy based on fossil fuels to different okay. to different areas. And then you mentioned uh, uh, nuclear. Fusion. nuclear. Um, yeah. We are what? So now we're we're closer and closer to um, being able to reverse the effects of it to mitigate that with fusion, right? So we mm -hmm. get better. I mean, there's been some real big breakthroughs in just the last year. Um, and I think that really is like when we have that capacity to access the power inside of atoms, but then safely able to you know, put them back together, basically safely, fusion in that direction, that'll be a game changer. 100%. Um, yeah. But think about how that would impact our world, right? If we had accessible, clean energy unlimited, right. well, that alters everything about human economy, but is a shining future. I think so. I think, again, if we have seen humans, I, I don't know what our lifespan is in a, as a civilization, but <laughs> if you've seen, we are one of the only species that have always been presented with problems and we have tried to overcome it you know I feel like you know, there's two parts to this and I'm not trying to find a find a way to like not do my part but even if we try to be as conservative as possible that's not going to solve the climate change issue uh, humans have always been able to evolve their way out of every crisis and I feel like you know with climate change there are some uh, ideas that have been thrown out where there is a um, there's a species that they created or they're working on that would absorb the carbon dioxide and uh, there, there's a lot of innovations out there um, you know based on well, your scientific the, study they're yeah. called trees trees absorb <laughs> carbon dioxide we've got them yeah that's right 
Well, we have the technology. <laughs> That's true. Um, uh, but sorry, yeah, that you're right. I mean, there's a lot of kicked in. Yeah, no, I think uh, you're right. There's definitely a lot of other ideas out there, more innovative, uh, just as innovative as trees and nuclear fusion. Uh, I feel like that is going to be our way to get out of it. But the, you know, again, taking back the right wing approach, uh, like there's a lot of idea that people there's there's this corners that we we set a set and say these people don't believe in climate change. These people will die for the planet um, yeah. or tree huggers, right? Yeah. Um, um, and frankly, the truth of the matter is, hopefully, sixty percent of the people are willing to you know, go in, go about their regular way and make some concessions um, without really being tree huggers or anti-planet. It's just that those two buckets are set to just make each other hate each other. How do you- I agree. And and it's one of those false dichotomies, right? Because um, uh, turning everything off and having less humans is not realistic. It's just not realistic. That's not going to happen. but uh, as is saying, it's fine, they're overreacting. Well, that that's, you know, sticking our head in the sand isn't going to do it either. But but both of those are sort of, you know, do these two extremes aren't really the, I think, I think the pragmatic practical approach. Um, I, in, in my climate change classes, we talk a lot about the psychology of climate change. Um, when something is big and scary and we feel powerless, um, we just tend to be like, I'm going to go watch a Marvel movie and hang out, you know, like I'm, yeah, then we, we, we retreat, um, and we, we shy away from action. That's just what humans mm-hmm. do. I get it. Right. You're like, right. can't do anything about this. I'm going to go, you know, out. <laughs> oh, exactly. Um, and then the, the other part is to say, well, but, but that also is probably uh, inaccurate. There's right. actually lots we can do. Um, and there's lots of success stories out there um, that are but a Google search away. Um, and so one of the formats that I really like is I really encourage people to go look at your city's climate change action plan. They have them. St. Louis has one. And one of the things I really like is they have this little tear sheet, uh, like a, a single page document, and it's called Good, Better, Best. And it's at, at your home and at your business. In other words, here are things an individual can do that help with emissions in your town. And I liked the good, better, best because it's very proactive. And also like, maybe I'm very tired and it's just so overwhelming. I can't do the best column, but I could do the good column, right? And in a lot of ways, uh, uh, just taking little steps gets us moving, right? Um, that's how you what you eat the elephant one bite at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the mentality of getting us moving that on climate change initiatives is it's great if you just say, well, what's, what is a good, better, best approach? What mm-hmm. is something little that I can do that actually matters on the planet? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's, there's lots and lots of things like that, that uh, uh, are useful. And, and like I said, you know, there's, there's so much uh, information out there. The belief in climate change is one that I think is sort of, um, I'm going to say funny, but I mean that in like the darkest of humor ways, right? Yeah. Um, that's the head in the sand thing. Um, or the part we get to, you know, what I think a lot about, which is education, science education in America, which is troubling on many levels. Um, but uh, it, and here's the real answer to that. Um, science facts don't really care what you think or feel mm-hmm. at all. Doesn't care. 
Um, the uh, let's go back to our, our smoking analogy. Um, your belief in whether or not you have lung cancer from smoking has nothing to do with whether or not you have lung cancer from smoking. Um, and that's just sort of the, the dark reality. So it's also the ultimate group project, which is kind of a bummer, right? We've mm -hmm. all done group projects, like from the time you're young. So I have, I have a 13 year old mm -hmm. and um, she is periodically massively frustrated by group projects. Because in, <laughs> in middle school, you get, you start getting a lot of those. And she'll be like, my team's got a couple deadbeats on it and they're not doing their part, but we're all going to get the same grade. So I'm going to finish the project and do the thing and you know, all the rest of it. And I, she's like, this is so unfair. I'm like, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yep. She goes, well, I mean, don't you think that's unfair? I'm like, babe, this is called being an adult. I mean, right. I bet, you know, all of your listeners right now are like, yeah, I've been in a group like that at work or a team like that. And your boss doesn't care. They're like, but did it get done? Right. Yeah. And so climate change is a little bit like that. Um, sure. I could do my part or mm. your country might do their part. And uh, and then, you know, the other 40 didn't. And our ice caps end up where they, you know, we, we all we all are experiencing the same thing. So mm -hmm. um, the think globally or work globally and locally really does mm -hmm. matter. We really, you know, and, and this is where I think that psychology of the mindset comes in, which is something I really, really try to talk to my students about as a philosophy and, and actually to anybody else that's still and listen. Yeah. Is that we have to think of ourselves as one tribe, homo sapiens. We mm -hmm. don't do that. We get all tribal, right? We're Cubs fans and Yankees fans. And, you know, we, well, and I'm in St. Louis, Cardinals fans, how dare you, you know, um, and we're very intense about that. And, uh, and uh, we love our little tribes, right? And just to kind of throw some perspective on that, that worked out really, really well for moving humans forward for all of human history. We, we, we get in our tribes and then our, what became countries and so forth and our, our competition and our pushing each other. And yes, even war led to advances in technology. I mean, the space race was great. It's how we got personal computers. Um, I mean, you know, the Sputnik got up there and beeped a couple of times and the U.S. collectively lost its minds and went to the moon. And so, you know, that, that drives us, right? Competition drives us. Um, it works all the way up until it doesn't. And yeah. we've hit that point where we forget that we're one species. We forget right. that we're all the same fundamentally and that now we have something that we need to work collectively on, have a global perspective and realize that the person in India, the person in Malaysia, they are your tribe as well. Right. And we got to kind of start acting like it. Yeah, I mean, I think we have seen that happen during COVID where we realized that, you know, just because this person has a you know, pandemic disease, you know, in other country doesn't protect me. We need, we are interconnected and that's why they try to do whatever we can with travel ban and others. But I think once it is solved or we're, it's in a rear view mirror, we're back to our old ways. That's why I loved uh, your TEDx talk. I got a chance to uh, read an excerpt and watch a little part of it. Thank you. Um, where you talk about plants, pollinators, and people. I love story where 
you know, rightfully so, you kind of integrated the fact that, you know, yes, plants pollinate, right, uh, through bees or through air or through bats, depending on the type of plant, um, and we pollinate. The only difference is plants can move uh, and plants can't <laughs> move and we can move. Um, say they're not so, walking around. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, I think I want to hear about like what made you come up with that um, as an idea and what was the genesis of that. Uh, and I have some follow up questions on that as well. Uh, on the integration with our, our uh, ecology. Yeah. Ecology. Okay, yeah. Plants, um, pollinators and people yeah, and how it's a love story. Thank you. It's it's very tied to sustainability, actually, um, and um, so so I was a biologist, right? And um, and it's not like the reason I became a biologist, like you know, I go back to like nineteen year old me banging around, sort of an unformed animal, right? Um, was really driven by I I didn't like to be inside for very much, and I wanted to see the world, and being a field biologist. Boy, that put me in, uh, you know, jungles and deserts and and all all over the place. But it was really driven by that old mm -hmm. human desire to, what's on the other side of the mountain? Right. <laughs> what what what's up there? What's down there? You know, yeah. Um, yeah. And then, um, so I was I was working on, you know, it, and that's what sort of originally drew me to um, biology. Wasn't plants originally, um, mm -hmm. not at all. But I was um, I was working and on a team that was uh, in tropical. Mm -hmm. tropical biology and uh and that was where i had this sort of like i know it sounds so silly but i'm like wait a minute plants can't move but they have to solve all the problems that uh -huh. i do they have to survive they have to reproduce they got to get like babies out into the world but they can't move and this was right. this like that evolutionary perspective of how do you what what adaptations and how do you solve those problems right. from that perspective of not being move like not be able to move um and to me it unlocked this like secret green world mm -hmm. because suddenly everything i was looking at in the rainforest made sense all right. the weird things plants did made sense if i looked at it with that with with those eyes um and then the part that i really started to focus on was the evolution of of uh, plant sex really and yeah. then and you get into pollinators you need a buddy if you right. can't uh, walk across a field. So that was kind of where that all came from. And then of course, like all biologists, you end up in quite a bit of conservation. And mm -hmm. um, I talk about this in the TED talk briefly, but save the elephants, save the tigers. I don't know how to do that. Climate yeah. changes and and the the way that we interact with our habitat is, is you know, there there's some extinction events that are going to be very sad and that um, I, I can't do anything about. Right. But, but pollinators are one of the areas that we can absolutely do something about. And given our dependence on them for our food supply, very important. Like just let's all save the bees. You know, that's that's what, and that's one where acting locally does make a difference. What you plant in your front yard makes a difference. So and that's yeah. nice and accessible. I mean, building on that. The yeah. I agree with you on the pollinators and the fact that plants have to survive. And, you know, one can argue that that applies to uh, all animal species, including humans. The only difference is, you know, the life expectancy or the survival rate. Uh, plants don't come up with sweaters to protect themselves uh, from, you know, cold weather or air conditioning to protect themselves from hot weather. So everything humans have done is to extend the 
you know, length of life and also extend our quality of life. And that's where it gets interesting in that even if you are a, you know, our entire species has been built on how do we continue to keep as many humans alive as long as possible, rightfully so, but it cannot come at no additional cost to the planet or to the animal kingdom. How do we balance that? Because we certainly can't stop our population to go from 7 billion or 7.6 billion. No, we'll hit 10. We'll hit 10. So there's a, there's a couple of things here. First of all, there's a lot of um, misunderstanding. I think when people talk about population control, et cetera, they go, Oh my goodness, they, they want to kill babies. And you're like, no, that's okay. Um, But uh, our population growth is slowing. Um, And (laughs) That's not a bad thing. When we say growth, we don't mean that there aren't enough humans or that there won't be enough humans. There are plenty of humans, lots of humans. We are, our population is still growing, but our growth rates, our birth rates slow down. Um, by and large, when you give people access to healthcare and when you educate, particularly your women. Um, educating your women is something outstanding that we should be on board with. When you when you give people uh, those chance, they tend not to have 17 children. Um, not saying that you can't knock yourself out, but that tends not to be the norm. Um, and 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 part of that is because well, you go well. Our it's a good thing that our birth rates have slowed in the last century, because that came with increased survival rates of babies and children. Mm -hmm. This is a good thing, right? It used to be like, so like my fourth great grandmother would have 12 kids and three would survive. That's kind of (laughs) rough. That's not, you know, so increased survival rates, decreasing birth rates. That's those two things make sense together. Yeah. And so, yes, we're racing towards 10 billion humans, but it looks like we will level out at, at sustaining our populations, which is not bad. But that right. said, we nobody's have nobody's arguing that we should not have more humans. I think it's a, it's just going to be a function of as long as our civilization is there, we'll continue to be more and more humans. I think how do we balance it with our consumption needs and yeah. make sure that the planet can feed? And here, yeah, and here here's the part where we have to take our medicine, right? Yeah, um, we do have to alter our lifestyle. And I don't mean like in a, you know, deprive yourself kind of way, um, but in very much innovating those different energy resources, we do really think, particularly Americans, we think a lot about how much stuff we can get and how much we can consume. And that mindset has not always been true about human culture. And lots of cultures on the planet don't view that like day to day that way. And maybe it's not the most mentally healthy approach to say, how much stuff can I get? You know, um, that we we can learn and mitigate and shift, I would say, our personal narratives about what makes us happy, right? Because that's the the quality of life. Um, those are those are uh, that that's psych and marketing and looking at the way that we approach the world. Um, but I would say also it, it does focus on the stories we tell ourselves, right? How do you define happiness? What is it that makes us happy? Mm-hmm. I see a, a a big shift in um, the students in my classroom coming in with Gen Z, in the way that they view um, happiness and success compared to my. Uh, emo Gen X generation, um, very much so. The, the way they shift towards their value on um, 
certainly on consumption and relationships mm-hmm. um, in having things or sharing things um, that, that I actually find really lovely and um, uh, a good arc uh, for mm-hmm. humanity. And that I think is um, uh, a little more caring in their central ethos sure. that, um, that I, you know, learn a lot from them and, and quite like, um, but like I said, there's also like, you know, this is not just baked into being a human, right? Lots right. and lots of human cultures approach what is happiness in very different ways, mm-hmm. um, with arguably, you know, great success. Um, but there's also the part with having that many humans and our cities will continue to grow. There is a, a huge field of study that's increasing and really, I think, exciting of urban ecology. What if we don't think of ourselves as separate from nature? which is sort of a lot of the last, since the industrial revolution, there's humans Mm -hmm. and then there's the nature over there, but actually looking at our cities as ecological landscapes. Mm -hmm. So not where, you know, where it's our, our uh, commitment to having a green world in every aspect um, is integrated into our cities. So lots more rooftop gardens and um, within the city and the way we think about transport and that our wildlife is uh, more integrated into part of the cities. These are the the cities that are shifting that way. And the ones that are examples of that urban ecology are healthier, that humans are healthier, air quality is better. You get more local produce. Um, I think that it's a really exciting, interesting um, area of study that's booming right now of urban ecology. And I like it because it reminds us humans are animals on the planet too. We are the ecosystem also. Um, we're not we're not inherently bad. We're just a very consuming, successful species um, that is unique, right? We're very unique. We can make decisions and choices in ways that other animals can't. And then uh, it's just looking at the link between us and our environment, I think, in a way that is better for us. And if it's better for us, it will be better for the rest of the the species as well. And, and this so, is this yeah. is fantastic. Again, I really appreciate you going into the detail here because I think, you know, like we started in the originally in the beginning of the episode, it's easy to get hopeless. But you know, I think that's not the right approach. I think we should continue to think about innovation. We should continue to grow. We should continue to survive. We should continue to keep you know, procreating and keep growing, keep pollinating like you're describing, <laughs> um, because that's, what's the point in living living your life without without performing our basic uh, duties as uh, a animal in the planet. So, um, and I think uh, for, for what it's worth, I don't feel like any of the luxuries that we have built should be something we should feel guilty about, yes, um, we have built airplanes. We've built rockets that go and uh, survive other planets. And uh, you know, we the innovation that humans have built, uh, whether it lasts another five thousand years or fifty thousand years, it does not matter. But we are the only species in this planet that's over, you know, had one point two billion years, at least one point two billion uh, years old, that has actually moved the planet forward. So I think I feel like I'm super proud of what we have done together. But I'm really interested, um, Kira, about your background and your passion. Um, you've, you've 
invested your life and energy into sustainability and biology and uh, building a better life, not only for yourself, but for your campus community and for hopefully and for the planet itself. What drives you? What makes you excited to commit yourself to such noble and holistic goals? Uh, well, I mean, it. it <laughs> um, so first of all, I should put out I'm not. Uh, remotely uh, fantastic at it. Good, better, best. I'm often in the good, better area, not the best. I have so many friends and and colleagues who work in sustainability who, oh my goodness, they walk the walk so much better than I do. Um, but I also try to do that part like you get up and you do the best you can for that day. And, um, but uh, I mean, you know, I'm, uh, I'm getting on a plane to travel next week. I'm not, you know, um, taking a bicycle everywhere I go. Um, I wish I could actually, I wish our city was better set up for that. But I think uh, I am a big believer in do the very best you can where you are. Obviously the big part, the part that I've decided to focus on, right? You sort of got to pick your, pick your, uh, the place that you can contribute to the conversation and, and, and make things a little bit better is education. Right. So um, that's that's the area that that I really focus on. Um, so I teach exclusively undergraduates and in my own research lab, it's all undergraduates. It's a time in life that I really enjoy being part of the journey um, because uh, 18, 19, 20 year olds, they are. I remember how much I needed to figure out who I was during those years, find a path and um, and and the key people that were you know, important in that journey for me. And I really like standing at those crossroads with the students and saying, you know, well, here, is, here are options, here's something to try and, and watching them sort of find, find the direction they wanna go. And it's also because, um, so I've had over a hundred students come through my undergraduate lab, like my actual research lab, not just the classes I teach. Um, very few of them, I think two have become botanists. <laughs> I haven't made a lot more me out there. Um, they become doctors and city planners and uh, dental school. And I, they, they've gone in lots and lots of different directions in science. Um, but what is one thing that, that sort of holds us together and that, uh, that we talk about a lot um, is, yes, but you will do the best you can in where you are at moving moving us forward with that ethos of what and they, the, the the sign hangs over my door in my office of be a good mammal this is what i've tried to teach my students this is my life philosophy be a good mammal and the way we define that is and anybody who's been in my classes knows this a good mammal takes care of themselves that's your health right your own body uh each other um and then their planet and so like each other um so I, I teach in the Midwest, right? It's a very Judeo-Christian centric area. And so uh, I often approach, I talk to them in their own language. I'll say, hey, you know that question, am I my brother's keeper? Mm -hmm. Yo, the answer is yep, <laughs> 100%. Are there people, are there children in your city that go to bed hungry? Is that your responsibility? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If you're a good mammal, you're gonna be like, what can I do to make my community better? What, uh, what difference can I make to other people? Um, and then uh, for your planet, right? However you choose to approach that in whatever your area is. And that also means it takes not just biologists, not just environmental science. It means, so as we've been talking here today, I mentioned areas of psychology and marketing and business and economy. 
um, this is uh, making a sustainable civilization is the ultimate group project. It takes every single discipline. And I include the artists and the storytellers in that because mm. um, we need vision and we need uh, beautiful ways of putting together ideas that inspire us. Right. Um, every civilization has needed those things. Sometimes they're the only things that last, right? right. I don't know how much you know, you know about ancient Samaria. I don't know much, but I know a couple of their mythologies and their stories. Sure right? Yeah. A couple of their great artworks that survived. Um, and so those things I think are, I mean, all of those things are wildly important for helping us come together to build a civilization that, that lasts. Um, this is a little dark, but it's, um, it kind of gets to that point. The last lesson that I teach in my sustainability exploration class, which is Oh, this is a very popular class. Um, they asked me to design a, a class that I would have wanted to take, which means it's not in a classroom. Um, 15 of the 16 weeks are field trips. We're somewhere else in the greatest, greater St. Louis area learning about sustainability. So we're like on solar roofs or we're out in sustainable farms or, you know, every, every week we're somewhere else. It has, mm -hmm. um, doesn't have exams. It's all project-based. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a really exciting course. The very last class, we go out to, it's a World Heritage Site near here, about an hour drive. Uh, it's called Cahokia Mounds. And there was, um, in the early part, uh, about, well, it's about a thousand years ago, the Cahokian civilization was, was huge. There's about 20, 30,000 people. They were the mound builders. You can look this up. They built these, this big city in this area and all that's left of these, these giant mounds, like, like pyramids made out of dirt. And we march up to the top of the biggest mound that's still there. And we look around and I ask what they can see. And they go, I can see the arch and I can see, you know, that kind of thing. And then I ask them what they don't see. And they're like, I can't see Maryville from here, our university. I, I, I can't see, you know, we're in Illinois. I can't see quite, you know, the Missouri River. And, um, and then I point out to them the biggest take home of the class, which is what you don't see are Cahokians. No Cahokians. And then they get very quiet. They're like, oh. And I remind them that we have yet, Homo sapiens have yet to create a civilization that lasts. Now, let's be the first, right? Sure. Um, but it's a, it's a bit of a quest, right? But the rise yeah. and fall has been going on since our species first started talking to each other. And, yeah. um, but you know what? We're getting better and better at having the conversations and acting in, uh, in, in big ways. Like you said, yeah. we're, we're innovative, we're, we're curious, um, we adapt well, um, unlike the trees, right? Who have to use evolution to get their adaptations mm -hmm. or that kind of thing. If it gets cold, you and I put on a coat, right? right. The ultimate adaptation that defines our species is right here. It's our head, <laughs> it's our brain. That's it, that's yeah. all we have going for us. Um, for but sure. it's a pretty good thing. And so, um, one, take care of it, you know, and, uh, and two, um, that's, that's a it's one of the most powerful things that we have. It's the most powerful, uh, adaptation that's been seen in any animal. And, uh, it's remarkable what we can do with it when we want to, right? right. We're so creative and kind and expansive when we want to be, and so monstrous when we don't want to be. Yeah. Right. And it's a boy, I don't know, flip the coin. Let's see which way we go. Yeah, I think uh, our survival will uh, will kind of extinguish. I know you're a botanist, so you probably 
your philosophy is not, you know, I'm not sure where you stand on the philosophy, but Schopenhauer, uh, one of my favorite uh, philosophers after Nietzsche, he talked about uh, will to life as our as our primal approach to do everything, uh, whether it is finding a mate or whether it is building a house or whether it is doing a job. Uh, obviously, will to life is basically our will to survive, will to live. Um, and uh, I think that will is going to ultimately allow us to figure out better ways to continue the planet and uh, keep it safe and hopefully healthy for everybody. Well, it will. And 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 there's a bit of a, a, a warning, though, in, in that philosophy. Um, all living things have that same drive. And planet Earth is going to be just fine. She's great. We've come through five major extinction level events. And I'm not just talking the one with the dinosaurs. I mean, mm -hmm. even earlier than that, things that have knocked us back to like nematodes, right? And voles. And uh, the planet has repopulated itself and biodiversity kicks in and evolution kicks in and it, we, you know, it, it rebuilds out. The trick is that every time that it rebuilds itself, it doesn't look like it did before. Yeah. And, um, so we as a, if you will, the apex predator on the planet, mm -hmm. the ultimate keystone species, we want to take a beat on feeling very confident. Earth's going to be fine, no matter what we do to her. She'll recover. But remember that those events recover without the apex. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it will look different. I personally am a big fan of Homo sapiens. I'd like us to stick around, which <laughs> means we need to take care of the web of life yeah. because- so this is like, a, I say to my students, I'm like, I don't care why you get on board with uh, with taking care of planet Earth and mm -hmm. addressing climate change. I don't care. Maybe it's religious or spiritual. Maybe it is, um, you really like, you know, elephants. Maybe, I don't care. It can be wildly selfish. Maybe mm -hmm. it's just that you would like to stick around. Great. I'm pragmatic. Not really concerned about your drive. Just care mm -hmm. that you do it. So um, I know we are kind of starting to come to the top of the hour here. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of things I want to definitely reflect on the planet, uh, right? Because the planet don't doesn't need us. You know, there's <laughs> Jupiter has no life. Mars has no life. There's billions of planets with no life. Uh, hopefully there's at least a couple more planets with life uh, of some form, um, maybe more for sure. But there's tons of planets with no life but we need this planet. So Earth needs, Earth doesn't need us, we need Earth. So uh, just got a chuckle out of that and hopefully that will remind us. So I know that you have written, um, you have scientific studies and also grant grant proposals as well, um, or you're, you're one of the grant awardees on some of the grants. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about your, you know, I know that you have a, a, you have a focus on spreading the message and encouraging and advocating for climate change, but you're also putting, you know, actual hard work towards this effort. Can you talk to us about your scientific commitment sure. to climate change or related matters? Yeah, we're just wrapping up our, our uh, field season on probably the, the largest grant that I'm part of right now. There are six PIs and it covers, uh, all of us come from different institutions. It's a real collaborative effort. 
um, the grant in and of itself, it's from the USDA to study um, the impacts of climate change on pollination. The grant itself with so many scientists on it from so many institutions um, speaks to what you can do when you collaborate, like when humans really, you know, get out of their silos and collaborate. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very large grant and it's looking at the impacts of climate change on pollination across the urban landscape. So from inner city out to rural high resource areas and then looking at um, uh, orchard yield. And so looking at you know, how it impacts our, our food resources. Um, there's of course lots of research in pollination and agriculture but we, we noticed that there was a, a space and a disconnect between um, the, 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 what the bees need and then what the plants need. And then mm -hmm. what happens on that interaction as it's in the different parts of the city landscape. And so um, there are three of us that are plant come from the plant side, three of us that come from the bee side. And then we have many grad students and an army of undergraduates um, that all work on the grant. Um, and it's, it's over several years. And we're starting to see some really um, exciting uh, results out of there. And, and one of the big things we're doing is, okay, but if we add in resources to sites, how does that impact the mm -hmm. uh, ecosystem services? How does that impact not just the pollination, but actually the yield? from from uh from the plants sure. um is every yeah are the bees and the plants both benefiting and since we're looking at uh, agricultural plants us what does it give mm -hmm. us and and this will directly translate we hope into practical um uh here's what you could expect in yield impact for like urban farmers and urban orchard uh carries this stuff on on you know making more fruits and vegetables in their areas um, across the city landscape um, that's probably the, the the biggest research project that I'm involved in right now. Um, it's funny because, I, like I said, I teach undergraduates. And so right as everything gets blooming in early April, late March, all the, the fruit trees, the hardwoods, you know, when everybody's nose closes up and everyone's miserable with allergies, you know, that that, that time of year. Allergy season, yeah. Yep. Uh, right as that hits is also when I'm hitting the last part of the semester and mm -hmm. and wrap up of projects and finals and um sort of like i said mother nature doesn't care mother <laughs> nature doesn't care she's like yeah but the trees are going now so it becomes all of my weekends and you know um sure. running around because uh trees bloom when trees bloom and semesters end when semesters end <laughs> and yeah um, for sure yeah occasionally the teaching side of my life and the research side of my life collide wildly and uh that's when my husband and my children go we will see mom eventually <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well that's that's amazing i know that you teach at maryville university mm -hmm. and you know there's so much to talk about but i would love to hear your thoughts on um you know on the future of education and future of the planet and how they are intertwined uh for us to become more exciting because you know i feel like there, there is a lot of skepticism about climate mm -hmm. change from maybe baby boomers or Gen Xers. But when you, when you look at Gen Zers, they're the most informed and they're most uh, involved with respect to climate change and advocacy. And I feel like if there is a silver lining in, you know, for our future, um, they are, they are it. And you're in the forefront of that as well. But let, 
why don't you give us some information? Uh, yeah, I would love to hear sure. your thoughts on Gen Zers, education, and where <laughs> you see the world going. Sure. So, uh, like I said, I love working with undergraduates. It's one of my favorite areas. Um, when I designed the sustainability program for Maryville uh, several years ago, um, I I very deliberately um, said we need to have three different tracks, uh, environmental science track, a business track, a policy track. So it's already it because sustainability is inherently cross discipline. Right. It it isn't yeah. just a science problem. And so in education, though, boy, this is increasingly true of any field. You've got to be this and this or this and collaborate with this or collaborate across three different fields. Um, and so I really see that the future of education becomes increasingly collaborative and cross discipline or interdisciplinary. Um, and then the other part is um, and this is in part the model of you know, we went to college for four years at age 18, and then we go and have careers. I mean, like you mentioned it, we're increasingly, I mean, everybody has to constantly be getting new information and re-educating and expanding their education um, in today's data-rich world. And so education is something that I think the idea that they, this is when you go to school becomes actually something very continuous mm -hmm. and a, a more open source model. Um, then the, the, there's a huge number of students in our program, particularly the online sustainability program, that are what we call non-traditional students, but I think will just become what we call students, sure. people of all ages, from all walks of life, who are both working and picking up, maybe even not a degree, but picking up a certificate or a, um, a, a retraining in an area to um, further in move a different direction in their career or be able to move into a new position. So it's mm -hmm. ongoing education, right? Well, if we're going to have that in a very data rich world, then we need to meet students where they are. It can't be like, well, this is when classes are at eight in the morning during, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and yet folks are like, well, I've got a life and I have a job and I have kids and you're like, great. So increasingly we, we, we leverage our technology. Right. Sure. So AR, VR, I use both of those in my classes extensively. And then um, having asynchronous courses or where you are meeting online, uh, maybe for like once a week uh, for the uh, interaction portion and then asynchronously after that, but becoming highly flexible in the delivery of our education. Um, I think universities do that, embrace that, or shrink. Because your learning population mm -hmm. is, um, it's not that humans don't need to learn, we need to more than ever, but it mm -hmm. has to be in this flexible, accessible environment uh, for the modern world. Sure. And, and I've really tried to build our sustainability program speaking towards that. That's great. I know that we can talk for hours together, but I do know that you have, you know, a labs to run, grants to win, and earth to save. <laughs> Dr. Kira, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed every second of it. Thank you so much. I'm a big fan. I've really enjoyed um, listening to your podcast and, and hearing others talk about what like the, the revolution in higher ed that's happening. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've talked about the big brain of our species. Um, we are in all areas fast and quick at adapting if we want to be. And higher ed is no different. Yeah. Let's, uh, well, we have to keep the higher education out of here. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, higher education has been slow to change, but 
going back to Schopenhauer's will to survive or will to live, uh, I think if it comes to our extinction event, I have, if we can figure out a way to, if somebody told me in 2018 or 19, that will shut down yeah. the entire yeah. planet and make everybody stay home so that, you know, we can reduce casualties as much as possible, regardless of whether it was a good decision or a bad decision or right decision or whatever. And if somebody told that on it, even in a movie, nobody would have forget about believed it. Nobody thought that was possible. If we can somehow lock down the entire planet for three months and make people do it without causing riots and um, crises, I think humans are capable of doing everything. So what yeah. do you think? I mean, I, here's the thing. Um, climate change is scary, right? Um, I know when that IPCC report came out, I was like, oh, I'm going to climb under the covers for a little while um, before saddling up again, you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm I'm betting on us. I, I believe in our species. I think we are... Uh, at our best, incredible. Yeah. When we have a crisis to solve, we will figure out a way to get together. Democrats, Republicans, Martians. Or, or, or when we want to do something. <laughs> yeah. Or when Sorry. we want to do something beautiful. That's yeah, the sure. other lovely thing about our species. We also like to do things because, you know, it's cool. Yeah. That's well, lovely. uh Let's end on that note of hope. Our listeners will post the show notes with all the great information about Dr. Kira Krakos um, and uh, you know, post, post all the information. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Everything is a service. Whether it's finding ways to help students reach their goals within higher education, sharing medical records to patients quickly and securely, informing residential customers of an impending outage, or communicating with remote satellites thousands of miles apart. All of it requires data, integration, and communication. At End2End, we provide services that make all of these possibilities realities. And we make it faster, simpler, secure, and easier. Because we believe everything is a service, and bringing everything together is how we can help you innovate and change the world.